politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles and broadcasting to all of Southern California, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, from the ocean to the desert, and then some. We, we also live stream, of course, on the internet at kpfk.org and are really, really glad you've decided to spend some time with us today. And here at the top of the show, I want to mention that after a couple of week hiatus, we are going to pick up where we left off on the uh, summer fun drive and uh, remind you of the opportunity that you have to be part of the KPFK Pacifica mission, which is radical free speech radio, diverse, antagonistic, in that uh, we have over a hundred programs with as many hosts and producers, and all of it designed to inform and in many cases entertain you as well. But while we are purposefully diverse and antagonistic, the one thing we have in common is each and every one of us is progressive. We are forward-looking. We're committed to working for peace and social justice. And we have a long way to go. Many people believe we're backsliding. It's hard to deny, in fact, that we're losing our grip on democracy. And I know the frustration, what can I do? What could little old me, what am I going to do? You can support this radio station with a contribution that's even tax deductible. It's almost like the government supports you in your efforts to improve the quality of government. And most importantly, to guarantee the civil rights, the human rights that are promised in our ever-changing and evolving constitution. You know, all men are created equal meant white landowners because it did not include black men and it did not include women of any color or status. But uh, it's a noble principle. And so as we get a better understanding of what these rights mean, the idea is to form a more perfect union. Supporting KPFK does that because of all of the diverse programming that we offer that You'll never find anywhere else because we take no corporate underwriting. We're not only commercial free, you won't hear any breaks that are brought to you by major corporations because we don't want the editorial entanglement and the influence that that goes with that. So I want you to help us uh, make a pledge right now and then you can listen to the guest I'm about to introduce and enjoy yourself knowing you're part of the family. How about 15 or $20 a month. Go to kpfk.org. Look for Sustainers Circle under Support KPFK. You'll see it in the banner. And make your pledge. If you can contribute $25, $30, $50 a month, that's great. If you're a student, a senior, you're maybe unemployed, gosh, $5 a month? Would you miss that? Or 10 bucks a month? Whatever you can offer. Or just dig deep 
and give us an annual contribution, still tax deductible, $150, $250. I just personally like the pain-free monthly contribution. And it'll show up on your bank statement. You'll see it right there, whether you get it in the mail or go online. Thanks a lot. KPFK.org slash donate or just kpfk.org. And then under support KPFK, look for Sustainers Circle. We're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, and uh, that's mindfulness and meditation. Uh, This whole program, as you know, is devoted to consciousness, which is a heavy word. It has a lot of meanings. I think of it simply as awareness. And that's what mindfulness is. It's like, uh, what does it mean to notice what you notice or to be aware of being aware or perhaps even to be awareness itself and to get behind the presumption that we are our thoughts or our feelings for that matter or the physical body banging around in in a world of separated form, like a, a billard ball, you know, crashing into other balls on the table. Uh, maybe that's part of who we are, but maybe there's more. And when we wake up in the morning, maybe there's levels or stages or degrees of how awake we are and what constitutes being awake. That's some of what I would like to cover today with our guest, and he's eminently qualified. He's with us from the uh, greater Boston area, I'll say that, and he's a clinical psychologist. He works as a uh, psychotherapist, has a private practice, is well known as uh, an instructor of mindfulness. I get his newsletter. That's how I found out about him, and it's a pleasure to have him with us today on KPFK. Dr. Mitch Ablett, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to the radio. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. How did you choose the field of psychology when you were a youngster headed off to college? At what point did you decide, wow, psychology, what a great field? Well, it was, it was not when I was heading off to college. Uh, I ended up changing my major multiple times, political science, English, and then ultimately history, uh, uh, primarily American history, and had never taken a psychology course all through college. Really? Never, never. Had zero understanding of psychology, had no interaction with psychologists or therapists uh, growing up in rural Ohio. And then going off to college, it was after I went to law school after college that I came face to face with uh, my anxiety demons. And I had managed to sidestep it through childhood by just gritting my teeth and doing really, really well in school, compulsively so, with lots of like self-coercive suffering that I stayed silent about. Um, So I was a quiet, shy kid. Uh, But when I went to law school, I thought I could do my same strategy of just working hard as a student, being, you know, very diligent and, you know, self-coercive. And I do well, like I did through college. But uh, I was not, 
I did not understand what I was getting myself into. I had law professors that seemed like they were on the lookout for people like me, anxious, avoiding, not wanting to talk in class. And therefore I got called on relentlessly. And so my anxiety went through the roof. I started skipping class. My grades, my first semester were not great at all. And I ended up dropping out with no plan and was, I would, I would venture, you know, depressed and anxious and literally, I mean, you can't make this up. I was sitting in my apartment in Tallahassee, um, watching a daytime talk show. This would have been in the early nineties or, you know, more like 1994. And I'm watching these people be completely ridiculous on stage during, I think it was like the Jerry Springer show or something like that. And this is literally how it happened. I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, these people need help. <laughs> Wait, who does that? Therapists. What about that? Maybe I could do that. And I went to a bookstore and got a copy of a intro to social psychology book, textbook. And I started reading it and I was like blown away, fascinated by it. And then somehow I had the gall to call the chair of the graduate uh, program at Florida State, say, hey, can I have a meeting with you? I'd like to become a clinical psychologist. So she very kindly, you know, set up a meeting with me. I went to her office and she's like, well, where'd you get your bachelor's in psych? I'm like, I don't have a bachelor's in psych. I have a bachelor's in history. And she kind of smiled at me and she's like, well, if you want to become a psychologist, you're going to need to have an equivalent of a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I just made up my mind right then and there. I was going to do a year and a half of post-baccalaureate undergraduate work there at Florida State. And I used my old strategy of just doggedly, self-coercively doing it. And I got into a doctoral program and I was able to stay at Florida State. So um, that's how I got into psychology. And yet I, I kind of kicked the can down the road a bit in terms of dealing with the anxiety piece. Um, it was, it was, I would say, you know, toward the end of grad school or even after I moved to Boston to do my pre-doc internship at the VA hospital that I, I really started to have to face that. But that's how I ended up in psychology. Well, psychology's come a long way. When I was in school, we were still uh, running rats through mazes and studying abnormal psych. Yeah. And uh, then out of the 60s and the 70s, I think, the pendulum sort of began to swing and somebody decided, uh, or I think a lot of people all at once decided at the academic level, maybe we should study happy, healthy, successful people. Yes. See what they're doing, what they got going on. Yes. And uh, now this uh, burgeoning uh, field of mindfulness and, and meditation. And I mean, the word consciousness is not a word that that uh, we heard very much back then. And we're hearing it more and more now. So yes. continue with this fascinating story about how then as a clinical psychologist your interest moved in the direction of mindfulness yeah no it was it was similar in, in, in terms of how i got into psychology how i tripped my way into the mindfulness world 
So as a young, early career psychologist, you know, I had been presented with mindfulness um, as a topic when I was in, even still in grad school. You know, one of my supervisors showed me a copy of uh, John Kabat-Zinn's, one of his early books, uh, Where, Wherever You Go, There You Are, is the title. Right. I remember I saw that title. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember, you know, saying, well, this is unscientific new age hooey. This is not psychology. And this is a fad. And, you know, I scoffed at it. I was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, evidence-based psychotherapy, a little smattering of psychodynamic uh, psychotherapy. But I viewed that as what I was and did not at all meditate, never really tried it. So I'm in my early career and the anxiety was big, the self-doubt was really significant. I felt like I was not really connected to my work, though I was getting good reviews, like I'm doing a good job. And I worked at the time with uh, adolescents who were at risk in residential programs. And I, I, I knew I was doing valuable work, but it wasn't really fully resonating. And I was getting burned out because I was working with very high level, very cute uh, behavioral disordered kids and their families. And then I ended up in a job where I was the boss of about 20 therapists. I was a clinical director of a therapeutic school here in the Boston area. And here I am in my early 30s and I'm already burning out and, you know, experiencing like secondary trauma, vicarious traumatization stuff and distressed and burned out. I had seen um, psychologist Steve Hayes, uh, who's one of the co-founders of a mindfulness-based psychotherapy called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I had seen him present at a conference in Chicago. And I remember sitting in that audience and I was very curious about the material he was presenting about that approach, that mindfulness-based therapy. But more than that, I was struck by his presence how he was talking passionately about this approach to doing clinical work. And I think it was that presence that he brought to the speaking and to the content that resonated with me really deeply. And so I started really studying that approach, had never meditated before. And I started looking for ways to start weaving that approach of mindfulness-based therapy into my work with my own, my own patients. And I started like coaching my staff to, to do it with their, their patients. But then unlike any of my training and all the techniques I had learned previously, where I would just kind of do it to people, this was the first time that I actually paused and did it to myself. And so I started meditating and I started meditating daily. And that really became my ultimate evidence that I was on a new track, that this was who I was to really steep myself in what could happen when I got fully present with those that I was working with, but also in my personal life. Before we get too far from your reference to cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT also has become increasingly popular in the last 20, 25 years or, yeah. or so. And 
I'm under the impression that that includes some guided imagery work. Am I wrong about that? You know, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy at its essence is about helping people understand and then notice and change the way their thought and behavior patterns manifest. So you notice kind of the, the link between thoughts, emotions, and actions, and that they're a cycle. And that when people are struggling with an anxiety disorder or depression or um, the effects of a big life change like divorce or a death in, in their family, um, there's high, there can be highly distorted, inaccurate, um, not based on the actual sensory evidence of reality, thinking patterns that fuel the suffering of those disorders. So CBT has people start to categorize and notice those distortions and thought pattern and then construct behavioral experiments to sidestep that thinking and do more adaptive behavior. So you end up kind of confronting and correcting the thought patterns and not being lost in them. That's standard CBT. And there's a lot of, lot of evidence behind it. But again, I'm, I'm curious about the guided imagery or creative visualization. That's a closed eye process. Yeah. And, and so usually relaxation, uh, when you close your eyes, you breathe, you relax. That's a kind of a meditation exercise. Yes. I, I'm just wondering whether guided imagery and, and uh, some closed eye process has been integrated into CBT along the way. Yeah, you know, I would I would say that it's been adopted by a lot of CBT practitioners over the years to guide people, you know, do guided imagery, visualization, you know, but it's coming from that they'll use it from that paradigm of thoughts create feelings, create behavior. Um and so that'll be used as a tool within that paradigm that if you correct the thinking the emotions will stabilize and the behavior will be more adaptive or healthy. So it's, it's a tool for doing that um, versus, you know, other people will use those same methods, but from a very different paradigm that's more about, um, you know, connecting people uh, with their whole self or connecting people more. This is more like gestalt psychotherapy with their whole essence, their whole being. Um, and not looking more mechanistically at thought, feeling, behavior components. Um, here's the thing. This is, I think this is very important. This is my bias. Even though I was not a meditator in grad school, I was drawn to study uh, things about the here and now relationship between a therapist and patients. So my, my graduate research was on what's called therapeutic alliance the relationship that develops between a provider and their patient. And whether we're talking about CBT or Gestalt therapy or psychodynamic psychotherapy, mindfulness-based psychotherapy, the number one predictor of outcome in psychotherapy, and this has been well-studied over and over again, the number one predictor of outcome is not the theoretical orientation or the technical tools or even the degree of experience of the therapist. Um, the number one predictor is the quality of the therapeutic alliance between a therapist and a patient. Rapport. Rapport, 
and authenticity and agreement as what we're about when we're together. Yeah. And I think I think that is it's always been interesting to me. I was drawn to that long before I would I really got it. Um, that as a therapist, I am a facilitator of conditions of authentic uh, relating. And it, it becomes a laboratory where that relationship is the tool. I think the message that reality is a safe place to live <laughs> <laughs> is a really strong message, you know. Yes. Like, come and play. It's really okay over here. Yes. Yeah, I like uh, that. But we do tend to get lost in our thoughts and in particular our anxieties. I'd love to spend some time talking with you about the interplay of thoughts and emotions. It's a, a fascination for me from for many years uh, and, and so complex and so rich. But our show's about mindfulness and I want to yeah. uh, promote an interest in people uh, becoming mindful about <laughs> learning about what it means to be more mindful. So how about a definition? How do you explain the concept of mindfulness to people? I'll, I'll do it two ways really briefly. There's the verbal way, which, you know, most people in the mindfulness field will point to, you know, John Kabat-Zinn that I referenced. His definition, uh, based on his many years of meditating and, and study, you know, paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment. And, you know, you slightly alter the words, but that's the, that's the essence of it. Paying attention on purpose to the present moment, absent judgment. And I've, I've always liked that definition. When I've done trainings live with people, I, I would give them that definition and then as a lot of people do in workshops, particularly professional folk, they'll be writing it down while I'm speaking. And then I'll ask them to take their pen or their pencil and cross it out. Whatever they just wrote down that I had just said to cross it out. And I'll say, no offense to John Kabat-Zinn, that's not it. That's not the definition of mindfulness. You have your own. I, I asked I, what I used to do in live trainings is I would then show them a video on the, on the big screen. And it would be this clip that I had found probably off of YouTube of this little child who had been born deaf and was in a lab where they, this is one of the early, early successes of a uh, cochlear implant. And they are turning on that device for the first time, and this, and this the kid's dad is there, and the dad says the the boy's name, and so for the first time in his lived experience, this kid can physically hear his father, and you can see that boy's face just light up. And I pause the video, and I'm like, that boy, that dad, and you right now mindful that it is that that's one way i've it's an experience that can't be captured in words where we drop in to fully what is in our experience and we're witnessing it as we're participating in it and thought is less relevant that's noticed too 
but we're not, we're not our thoughts in that moment. We are the witness. I've seen that video or one like it, a couple of them actually, and yeah. it's just joyful to the point of uh, bringing you to tears to see that yeah. awakening, that whole do, new dimension of reality occur to these children. Reminds me of the biblical phrase about the scales, removing the scales from your eyes that you might be able to see, or the whole story in Buddhism of uh, uh, Buddha encountering these workers in the forest, and they they fell on their faces in his presence and said, what are you, a god? As the story goes, Buddha said, no, no, of course, I'm not a god. They said, well, you must be some great avatar or sage or, or, or prophet, uh, a guru. And, Buddha says, no, no, not really. I'm none of those things. They said, well, then, who are you? What are you? And Buddha said, I'm awake. Yes, I am awake. Yeah. So I really like that definition. Um, I think if we look at Kabat-Zinn's bracketing of this subject, the hard part may be the non-judgmental part. Yeah. Because I think our mental nature, maybe our egoic nature, jumps forward and says, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean I can't judge? I shouldn't judge. I've, what about the the traffic light when it turns orange? I mean, I've, I've got to judge, right? Yes. So what about this uh, last aspect of the definition, non-judgmentally, to be aware? Yeah, yeah. I, I've always struggled with that one myself. And I understand, I think, why he has that in the definition, why many others have used the, the, the word non-judgment. To me, it, it, the problem, if there is one, is that it, it facilitates more thinking. And, you know, non-judgment, to not be judging versus people connecting with what they've already experienced, which is a moment of kind awareness of what is and that the critical thinking mind it may be there but it's not relevant so it's almost like i almost like the word irrelevance of judgment and i like the i like the aspect of kindness that there's a kindness toward experience as it's unfolding like oh of course this is even if it's painful, even if it's uncomfortable, there's, you know, that's why many of the, um, as I'm sure you've seen, the traditional statues of the, uh, the Buddha, you know, particularly the ones, I'm, I'm blanking on the term, when, you know, the moment of awakening, where he's touching the ground as his, the earth as his witness that he is awake. If you look at the face, and particularly, I think the the tie, you know, depictions of that, you know, that Buddha image, there's, there seems to almost be a little tiny smile on his face. Not a big one, just slight. And and I, to me, that that image, that visual, is important. And it's not about Buddhism. It's it's the how to re, how one is relating. If if you're really mindful whatever is showing up in the content of consciousness that you, there's a sense of, of course, of course it is. It's unfolding. 
you took that right off my brain cells. Of course, is exactly the phrase I had in mind. That that to me is awakening. Uh, but it's a process. It's not a destination. I have to take a short break, Mitch, and uh, then I want to talk more about this uh, whole idea of of judgment and uh, a concept called beginner's mind. Let's let's uh, give yeah. you a clue. I want to go in that direction right yeah. after this short break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom on ninety point seven KPFK in Los Angeles, and we'll be back right after. This. Looking for another way to support KPFK? By donating your vehicle, you're supporting the programming you value. Donating your vehicle is quick and easy. You can always pledge your support at kpfk.org. You appreciate KPFK, and we appreciate you. KPFK and your radio at 90.7. I'm Michael Benner, and this is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, a weekly program, Tuesdays at 1 o'clock, about awareness, about consciousness, as many things, including even identity, maybe who we are, what we are, maybe even why we are, is closer to the idea of being aware that we are aware than the thoughts, most of which we're not really consciously aware of. How much of your thinking is rote? Of your emotions, most of which are submerged, really don't even understand what motivates us or why we do the things we do, and, and how much of our behavior is reflexive. And you don't really consider what you've done until after you've done it. And then with some regret, we often uh, rationalize or defend a behavior that we know uh, we could have done a better job if we had thought and felt and, and been more aware, right? So maybe this stands behind our thoughts and our feelings and our behavior and our perception of the world. Dr. Mitch Ablett is my guest from uh, the greater Boston area. He's a clinical psychologist and mindfulness instructor. And Mitch, uh, we, we're talking about the judgment or the non-judgment part of mindfulness and how challenging that is. I think we have a lot of evidence from empirical research that Unconsciously, our brains are filling in a lot of the blanks and biasing us uh, according to our experience of things, such that uh, this concept of beginner's mind, I really love uh, a kind of awakening, suggesting that we could look at things, starting with maybe just a simple object, as if we'd never seen it before, some common object like a, a pencil or a dollar bill and look at look at it like you've never seen it before. That creates a real remarkable shift, doesn't it? Yes. The, this was the, the basis for my last book that I, I, gave, I, I like to make up words. <laughs> I, I'm a, I love wordplay. And I was, I've been well aware of all the research and parenting and child development around praising kids. And, you know, praise can seem like it's a really good thing. And yet when adults do it with an agenda to get a kid to do more of something, or they do it from a place of condescension, kids can sense that. So I came up with this title for this book. I called it Prize Worthy, that all kids are prize worthy. 
And to me, this is about beginner's mind. You know, kids, like you're suggesting, you know, kids are like closer to the ground of, of curiosity and acceptance of things as they are, and they just want to play. They want to understand. They want to inspect things. I see it in my own kids. And we as adults, by and large, we've lost that because we've had these decades of buying into our thought patterns and all of the self-protective layers of our habits that are there because our brains are trying to make sense of reality and trying to protect us from pain experience. But in one of the casualties is that curiosity factor, that mind of a beginner. So when I was writing this book, which is largely for parents, I wanted them to start, I wanted to reframe parenting, that there's a prize in your child in any given moment, that behind whatever behavior they're, let's say they're being a nudge, behind that behavior is a prize that's in that present moment, that kid is feeling something, that kid has a need, a universal human need that is feeling threatened to them or, they, or they're really going after it. They're really taking a leap towards something. They're taking a risk that's healthy, but they're scared. They're overwhelmed. That's a prize in that moment. So when we as adults return to a sense of curiosity and instead of just reacting to what our conditioned mind says, oh, I know what's going on with my kid. This is my kid or they just need to do X and then things will go well. That's all the chatter of the adult mind versus the grit and the glory that's there in that moment behind things in the experience of that child, that's the prize. And so beginner's mind to me is the willingness to drop into fully that curiosity mode and then speak and act from it toward the child. And I, that's been my treatment plan for 20 years. I, my mentor in grad school, and I still didn't meditate for a long time, but he said to me many years ago, he's like, Mitch, don't praise your clients. You really need to prize them. And that was like a lightning bolt in me. I came to uh, find out years later that uh, psychologist Carl Rogers, one of the founders of humanistic uh, psychotherapy, psychology, he referred to the term prizing. He then later shifted toward calling it unconditional positive regard. I think he wanted it to sound more scientific. Um, but, you know, so I'm not coming up with anything new, but I'm embedding it in the mindfulness world that kids have something figured out. You know, just get curious. And then you are aware of possibilities that you'd otherwise miss. What kids don't have is the intentionality in, in their curiosity. And this is where we can harness what kids have, their beginner's mind curiosity with the adult brain ability to be intentional. And then that's, that's where awareness becomes very, very powerful, where we can intentionally be looking at what is, whether we're talking about kids or our career or our relationships with each other as adults, what is the prize in this moment of interaction and how can I show up to it and let the other person know I see it? 
So the problem then with judgment and the labeling that goes with it is we think we already know it once we've judged it or labeled it. Yes. Once we've verbalized it with a subject and a verb and an object, it becomes concretized or set in such a way that understanding stops to a large degree. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes complete sense. You know, I, you know, thinking is part of being a human being. You know, you could argue that, you know, it evolved as a adaptive feature of our brain, you know, that clearly helped us survive as a species and then thrive. We could do things via thinking that no other species could do. We could think outside the moment to anticipate threat and think about how to access, you know, food in particular, so that even though we didn't have the biggest teeth or the fastest, you know, legs or whatever, we could um, think our way toward how to solve the puzzle of survival. The thing is that tool that we evolved has become identified with and that now, you know, yes, there's still survival issues for human beings, clearly, but as a whole, we don't have daily survival, particularly anyone listening to this, as as something that would require us to be able to think our way out of a survival situation. Um, So we have all this time to sit and think and think about our thinking and think some more. And then all these I, me, and mine thoughts keep showing up that we identify with those thought patterns. So that tool, we become the tool instead of seeing it as a tool. Thinking is a tool. It's a great tool. It's a powerful tool, but it's not who we are. Yeah, which of course begs the question, who are we? But we've already touched on that. Perhaps, just perhaps, we are the awareness behind all of that. Yes. When we talk about judgment, I think the first thing that comes to mind is judging other people or judging even events and circumstances. But some of the greatest damage that we do to ourselves, seems to me, is when we judge ourselves. And most of us have such a high level of anxiety around our adequacy, whether we're, whether we're good enough or smart enough or strong enough or pretty enough or uh, to the point of self-loathing. And when people are lost in thought and not paying attention to the outer world, a lot of that inner rumination, I'll say, is just filled with negativity. Would you comment on that? Yeah, no, there, there's... I've I got I have my personal experience with rumination. You know, back in those uh, heavily anxiety laden days, I can remember, like even in grad school, sitting during office hours as a teaching assistant. No one's showing up to uh, check in with me from my classes, so I'm sitting there, staring at the wall, ruminating thinking about myself. Why did I say this? Why did I do that? Oh, they're thinking this about me. This bad thing's going to happen. And I'm literally like basically at the physical equivalent of like a 
you know, zazen, you know, staring at the wall, and there's no stimulation there other than what I was creating in my own thought patterns. And and I'm starting to clench. I'm starting to get anxious. I'm starting to suffer. And what I personally experienced, and the research really bears this out in the mindfulness literature, after the, you know, some, not, not even years and years, I'd say after a year of daily sitting, I had this awareness one day. I don't do that anymore. And that was, that was like, that was a big shock to me. Oh my God, that really doesn't happen much anymore. 30, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day for over a period of a couple of months. And they've been able to measure changes in that, those areas of the brain that we know in neuroscience are involved in regulating our emotion and thinking patterns. You mean changes not just in blood flow or electrical activity, but physical growth of gray matter and white matter, right? Growth and then reduction of thickness in certain areas that tend to be um, involved with quick emotional activation. Like the amygdala. The amygdala, yeah. So this is well understood through you know, hard science, neuroscience research. So, you know, it's, it's not really in debate anymore, but I have my personal experience. Oh my God, I used to ruminate constantly. I'd sit on the school bus as a little kid, just ruminating, spinning with negative thinking, negative predictive thinking about myself or fixation on the past. And somehow I knew where I wasn't was now. But if you just take the, the classic thousands of years old form of meditation of observing the experience of the sensations of the breath, it teaches you to notice that experience, sensory experience just rises up. It's not controlled and it's not a product of your thinking. Thought pops up as well and you can notice that and you can come back to that experience of the sensation of breath and you start to go beyond the word non-attachment and you experience non-attachment that there's something that is holding and witnessing all of these contents thought emotion bodily sensation and i'm not any of that and so non-attachment to me is you know, kind of like with the, I said earlier on the definition of mindfulness, the boys, you know, auditory awakening, non-attachment is best defined as an experience where you're witnessing the arisings in the present moment and you're not dependent on them, that you can be aware of them arising, rising up, being, and then going away. And yet that awareness always is there. It never changes. It's never damaged. It never goes away. I think the beauty of a breath-watching meditation, and I think in Buddhism this is called vipassana. Again, this is not a religious practice. This is some very old science. Yeah. 2,500-year-old science. When we watch our body breathing itself involuntarily, so-called, and identify as the watcher rather than the breather. In time, it occurs to you 
that you have the freedom to disagree with a thought. Yes. And that's a pretty remarkable passage as we grow and mature to realize if I'm not the breather, but my ability to watch it, then maybe I'm not the thinker, but my ability to observe the rise and fall of these thoughts and affirm the ones that I wish to affirm and just release the ones, the doubts, the worries, the fears, the stresses and anxieties that don't really apply and aren't true, but keep coming up over and over again because we're in such a frenetic world. You know, th- this is this is why, you know, I've when I teach mindfulness these days, you know, typically to parents and or professionals, I I, I call it momentology. Moment, so it's not Scientology. It's not some cult. <laughs> it's basically my way of saying that the molecules of our lives, the raw ingredients of our lives, are moments experiential moments and then i i like the the ology you know i'm a psychologist you know psychology the study of you know that the real meta science like the buddha talked about 2500 years ago other you know religious uh figures have talked about from other you know and then secular people like me you know studying the moment while fully participating and making the moment. You know, I, I think that that is, you know, if you're, if there's non-attachment, if there's witnessing, you're studying it. You're not overthinking. You, you, you study the thinking, you study the bodily experience, you study the circumstance around you. And then you are also fully engaged in participating in it. I think a lot of the misnomer around mindfulness and meditation the way it's traditionally taught is it feels passive to people in the West, you know, particularly professionals that I work with. It's two, or it's two uh, rainbows and unicorns and it's an ideal and there are all these abstractions like non-judgment and compassion and enlightenment. And then a lot of people like I used to be scoff at it. But when you think of it as momentology, there are these moments to be studied yet fully participated in. There are opportunities, there are prizes to be discovered that aren't about your identity, that you your historical identity. It's about what's unfolding. And if you really get clear as you study the moment, you'll take action. And sometimes that action is silence. Well, I, th- I think the reason... Uh a careful speaker will use a phrase like non-attachment or uh, I I like your idea of momentology. It appeals to me, but sometimes we'll hear people talk about detachment. Yes. That really suggests the lack of engagement or even obliviousness and using meditation to escape reality rather than be, fascinated and and curious and immersed in it. We're talking about non-attachment to immerse yourself in an ever more rich reality and not escape it. That's right. This is where I immediately associate to the misunderstanding that uh, contemplative tradition, 
particularly Buddhism, says that desire is bad. That you need to get to a place where you no longer desire. And I think that's hooey. I think, <laughs> I think that if you really, again, study this desire, you know, being drawn toward pleasurable experience is part of being a human being. And so when I hear detachment and I and then quick on the heels, like you need to get away from, you know, being attached and having desire. No, it's about craving. You know, you know, don't crave, you know, positive experience. Don't try to make it be. Instead, if some, if, if the brownie tastes good, you eat the brownie. You're enjoying the brownie. Oh, this is great. But you don't crave and allow that to narrow your perception of everything else that is. And I, I think that's where I, you know, I, 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 I hope to continue to be part of teaching mindfulness. But from this angle, that isn't anything new. It's a, it's a frame that I, I think, at least it appeals more to me. Maybe I'm the only one that, you know, you know, no, look at it as moments to be studied and engaged and leveraged. And sometimes leveraging the moment is shutting up, allowing silence. I heard the uh, Dalai Lama at one point admit that the problem with giving up desire is that it, that becomes a desire to stop desiring. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I was writing a post, uh, you know, in my email list. And I, I said that home uh, work life balance is the new enlightenment. And by that, I meant that just as much as I think concepts like enlightenment become a trap, that you're pursuing, you're desiring this end state that you then crave. Similarly, a lot of parents, particularly parents who are professionals, are trying to strike and find this balance thing. I have to balance my home life or my parenting with my professional. You know, screw that. Don't aim for balance. Do what ballet dancers do. They're not balanced all the time. They're constantly, skillfully showing up to the moment and they, they are the verb of balancing not perfectly, but they keep showing up to the micro moments. And I, I think, I think that's, you know, similarly with enlightenment, don't, don't keep pursuing this thing that becomes an abstraction. It becomes something that self, the thinking self grabs onto. I have to get to that because particularly in the West, I, I got to get my A, I've got to get my bank account big. I've got to be an influencer. I've got to get enlightenment. No. Show up to now and study it and do what resonates. Well, we didn't uh, spend as much time talking about the, I guess we can't really, given the limits of time, talk as much as I'd like about living in the moment. But what you're saying about pursuing goals, and we do need to have uh, goals and and objectives, but again, to even do that from the present or, or to learn from the past doesn't mean to go there and dwell on it. Learn from the past in the present moment. And that may sound like doublespeak, but to live in the past and live in the future is to live in mental images and yes. recollections of feelings and every every 
moment, I'll use that word, that we spend in the past to the future is an instant that we're missing the reality of right now, an eternal moment that unfolds. Yes. Eternity is an everlasting now. Yes. Here's my way of saying it, Michael, that, you know, goal, I agree, goals are important. I have goals. But I, I was, you know, a Boy Scout in rural Ohio as a young kid. We took Boy Scouts very seriously then in the, you know, 1970s, you know, early 1980s when I was a kid. And I learned orienteering. Have a map and have a compass. And particularly when you're lost out in the woods, it would be foolish to just be in the moment in terms of just wandering aimlessly. But you can make a moment by pulling out your map, pulling out your compass, and study it for a moment. Make that moment of studying it, and then turn into the world based on checking in. You know, that would be consulting a past experience. That would be thinking and anticipating and having a plan, having a goal. But then you hold that goal lightly, and then you move based on what is. That to me is like, that's, that is the ideal around goal setting or use of past experience or future planning. View it as a map and a compass. And I like the compass thing because compass resonate with what is magnetically. Similarly, inside of each of us, I call it the prize. You know, we each have a unique fingerprint of what resonates with us. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, you know, many, many years ago, you know, to thine own self be true. You know, every heart vibrates to that iron string, he wrote. And when I read that years ago, I'm like, that's it. That's the inner compass. It's like an iron string that when it's plucked, when we intentionally pluck it, it resonates out with the world and comes back to us. And I, I think that's our ultimate goals. Instead of it being a mindy thing, it is something about who we uniquely are. And then we check that compass in a given moment. Okay, now what movement is in that direction? Mitch, we're all out of time, unfortunately. I'm very much enjoying our conversation here today. How can people find out more about you? The easiest way is my website, uh, you know, drdrmitchablett.com. That's all my books, all my stuff that I'm doing is there. And of the books you've written, which one do you think people should begin with? I, I had originally uh, envisioned that prize-worthy book as a broad human communication relationship book. It's focused on parenting, um, and yet I'm biased, but I think it applies to any interaction, you know, with another human being. So I would I would send people there. What's that title? Prize-worthy. Oh, that's it. That's, That's the it. That's the main title, prize-worthy. Dr. Mitch Ablett. Mitch, thank you. It's uh, really nice uh, meeting you, getting to know you. Um, I enjoy reading your newsletter, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. I'd love to. Yeah, it's, it's great fun. Well, have a wonderful summer in Massachusetts, and say hi to our friends on the East Coast, and best to you and your family. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to The Mystery School on KPFK. If you don't already know about it, it's really time to discover KPFK. 
KPFK is community radio from Southern California, powered by people like yourself for over 62 years. It's part of the completely unique Pacifica Network, and our listener sponsors are passionate. We've routinely heard them say things like, It is the best source of news that I know of. The thing that distinguishes Pacifica from the rest of the media landscape is our funding model, listener sponsorship. It allows us to speak to what really matters in our listeners' lives. So why not become a part of this impassioned community? Make a pledge. With your generous continuing support, KPFK is committed to serving the vast and diverse communities of Southern California and beyond. So please, make your pledge now at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735. Thank you. Well, hey, we just got a few minutes here, so let me use this time to remind you of the opportunity that you have to step up to the plate and be a sustaining sponsor, a contributor. I like to say a member of the KPFK family of community radio for all of Southern California and indeed for the world at kpfk.org. Not another station like this in Southern California. Pacifica owned and operated an organization dedicated to peace and social justice issues, news, information, and quite a bit of entertainment, too, that you will not find anywhere else on the dial. Certainly not a radio station that has sponsors or even corporate underwriting, like so-called community radio or public radio doesn't exist. We are not only commercial-free, but we accept no corporate underwriting. We don't want the editorial influence, quite frankly. We want the freedom to be able to tell it like it is. Over 100 programs every week from a variety of hosts. The one thing we do agree on, as I said at the top of the show, is that we're all progressive and we're forward-looking and devoted, according to our mission statement, to peace and social justice. And we will not rest, especially in these difficult times when your help is so desperately needed. Won't you ante up just $20, $25 a month, $15 if that's uh, more than you can handle, $10 if you're a student or or unemployed, $5. Let let me take away all your excuses. Don't you dare say you can't afford $5 or $10 a month. I know you can And you're going to feel really good about it. I mean, every time you listen to this radio station, you're going to feel like you're a part of it because you are. That's what we've been about for 62 years. So let's keep it up. Be one of the 10% of our listeners that actually donates to this radio station. All right. And any contribution beyond $25 a year makes you a voting member as well. So you can really get involved in your community radio station, KPFK. Point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate. Poke around, you'll find Sustainer Circle. Make your contribution today. Do it right now. kpfk.org, Sustainer's Circle, three minutes. It's one and done. Bob's your uncle. Easy peasy, okay? Thanks so much. Join us next week for the Ageless Wisdom, Tuesdays at one o'clock. Stay tuned for Gary Harrison. Let me thank my producer, Mark Brisky, and you for listening. The homepage is theagelesswisdom.com. Find out more about me and my free Zoom class 
on Sunday morning at michaelbenner.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner on KPFK.